Everyone, how are you today? Thank you, thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, well, as you can see, I got nice and tan. I got a, I got a ginger tan, so there's like a few more freckles. That's about it. We don't tan, we paint. Yeah. No, it was really good. It was a training. It was a it was a jiu-jitsu training trip with multiple-time world champions on a cruise ship. So it was kind of combining work with vacation. I've never been on a cruise before, ever. So this was the first time, and uh, I'm gonna go back. <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> They have me at free ice cream anytime you want. There's just yogurt machines around the ship. You just go up, put a cone in. Man, it was crazy. So we were we were training hard. So that gave me a little more leeway to eat a little more. But um, no, it was really good. Made some good connections. Told them a lot of people about the Cycle Dojo and the ministry that we do, not just with um, the refugee kids that uh, we teach, but also this Bible study as well. So it was really cool. Uh, way to combine work and relaxation. Um, yes, I appreciate it. Next June, I'm, I'm going to need you to let me go back because that's what the next one is. So I'm going to start saving now. Uh, we'll take a special tot. No, we won't do that. Uh, speaking of taking a special offering, just so those of you that may not know, every week we just ask that you throw some money in the donations plate here the bucket and it goes to the kitchen staff who prepare the food each week. So I don't get any of it, Bruce Chris doesn't get any of it, but um, the people who serve us get it. So I always tell people, leave what you can, leave what you think it's worth or more if you're able. Those of you who are able to leave more, leave more. Those of you that struggle, leave what you can. Um, that's kind of the kingdom principle that we've seen all throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament even, when you're bringing your offerings. And it's a good principle that applies just in general to how we are to be generous people. Um, and so just know that it goes to the people that serve us each week. We, two weeks ago when I was with you, we were in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Last week, Chris Thayer was here, right? Is that correct? He did well. He's actually in the next room <laughs> right now. There's a pastor's meeting, a citywide pastor's meeting going on in that room. So if they get rowdy, we have to go in there and tell them to keep it down. <clears throat> but yeah, Chris is one of my favorite people. He's actually on the board of my ministry, so he helps keep everything uh, level and just such a great guy. So I'm sure you were blessed by him teaching uh, as always. He's, he's usually my first choice if I can't be here. I, he's, he's, I pick up the bat phone, I call Chris, and if he can't do it, then I have a few more that I go to, but I'm always glad that he comes and speaks. So now we're getting back to where we left off though, Deuteronomy 11, and I apologize, the pollen coming back to this climate and the pollen count. My sinuses are a little wonky, so if, you, if I sniff, just bear with me. But we're Deuteronomy 11, and this section of Deuteronomy, remember Moses is, and we recap, not just for your benefit, but also for the people watching and listening. Moses is speaking to, he's, he's giving a recap of the covenant. And it's not even a recap, it's, it's the covenant for this next generation. So God, if you remember, made the original covenant with their parents in Exodus 19 and 20. That's where the Ten Commandments were given. They're the beginning of the covenant. And that was how Israel was going to live. 
as God's people. Well, that generation, as we saw, forfeited their, their saving. You know, God saved them and was going to bring them into the land, and they forfeited it by rank disobedience, open rebellion. And so God said, okay, well, my promises are still going to get done because my plans do not fail, but you're not going to participate in it. And so their generation died in the desert because of their rebellion. And the new generation now are the ones who are standing on the precipice of the promised land. They are, they are overlooking. Imagine if this is a map of the Holy Land, all right, in front of me. The Jordan River runs down this way, and so Israel's on this side. Modern-day Jordan would be over here. They are standing on the east side of the Jordan River, and they are looking into the promised land. They were supposed to come up from the south originally, but that generation failed with the spies and their rebellion. So God had them wander 40 years until that generation died out. Now they've come up. They're on the bank, not really the bank, but near the banks overlooking the Jordan. So imagine they're looking into the promised land. They're entering it from the east, just as they would enter into the tabernacle from the east. So the promised land is kind of, the tabernacle in many ways is a, is a miniature version of God's idealized promised land. They're looking into it and, and Moses kind of stops them and says, all right, before you go there, let's recap so you don't do what your parents did. And Moses, his brother Aaron is dead, his sister Miriam is dead, Everybody from that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb the Kenizzite, are dead. So he is telling them, this is his last will and testament. Hey guys, you are about to go in that, in there, and it's going to get crazy. So when you go in there, here's what you need to do. And that's what he's recapping Deuteronomy. Here's how you're going to live. And above all, you're going to do what he says in chapter 11. <clears throat> This is part of the sermon, series of sermons that he's giving. So he's expounding law, but he's doing it through sermon. And in this section, he's about to speak specifically to the temptations they're going to face religiously. He's already talked about economic temptations that they're going to face. And he says, chapter 11, verse 1, Love Yahweh your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. That's the overall theme of this chapter, this section of the speech. Love Yahweh. Now, we think of that, we think of love God. Well, how do you feel? How do, how do I feel towards God? How do I, you know, we think of love, like we think of maybe a red heart, Valentine's Day, or some kind of feelings. Keep in mind, and I've, I've been saying this from day one, Deuteronomy is an ancient Near East suzerain treaty document. The language of love is found in many ancient Near East treaty documents. And it does not mean have affection for. What it means is be exclusively committed to. Be completely loyal to. So a great king would make a treaty with a vassal who he's liberated and he orders the vassal. He says, here's what you're going to do as my faithful vassal. You will love the great king Esarhaddon. Or you will love the great king Supilululumus, which is actually a real name. Or you will love the great king, you know, whatever king, whatever kingdom, whatever. You will love them. And what that meant was not that you'll think nice thoughts about them. Although that would be desired. What it mainly means you will be loyal to this king. That means you will not go to other kings 
for help. You will not go to other kings for planning. You will not go to other kings for treaties. Because we have a love relationship. A faithfulness. A loyalty relationship. So this is important because love in the Bible does not always mean what love in English means. The English word love and the Hebrew word ahab are not the same word. They have some overlap, but they are not the same word. So in English, you know, our our word love is meaningless. Like, I, I loved what we had for lunch today. I love my mother. Two very different feelings, right? Well, the, the Hebrew word is has a, its own range of meanings. And so keep in mind, when God's telling the people, commanding them to love him, what he's commanding them to do is to be loyal to him, exclusively follow him, trust him, and do not run to other gods to get what you think you need provided for you. Why? Because God is the one who has said, I will provide everything for you. And that's what this chapter goes on to spell out. It says, verse 2, he's going to give them a little history lesson. Remember today, your children, and he's talking about their future children, or the ones who are infants at this time. He's talking about the ones who will be in the land, who will not know what it was to wander in the wilderness. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. His majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country. That's everything that happened in the first ten chapters or so of Exodus. So he's saying, hey, remember, your children didn't experience any of this stuff. They aren't the ones who are going to know this intuitively. Meaning it's going to be up to you to pass that on. They didn't see what he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them at the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, how the Lord brought lasting ruin on this. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eli of the Reubenites, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all Israel and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. It was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord has done. So he's just given them two images of judgment. The great acts, the mighty works, the good things God has done consisted not just of giving people blessings, not just of cosmic Santa Claus, but also of judging the wicked and the rebellious. So judging Pharaoh, his horses, his arms, his chariots, the most powerful military on the face of the earth in all of human history up until that time, He's saying, you saw what God did to them. And then to Israelites, Reubenites. Reuben was the firstborn, remember? To the Reubenites. Hey, when they rebelled against Moses' leadership, when they said, who are you you to rule over us? We don't need to listen to you. Every Israelite is holy. You know, we should be. And the earth opened and swat. The same God that judged Pharaoh judged rebellious Israelites as well. And this is part of the discipline of them as a people that Moses is passing on, saying, remember, remember, remember. So he's not just saying, remember the good things God has done. He's saying, remember the judgment God has done. Because it would be too easy to slip into thinking God is just a distant deity that lives up on his mountain. And he only listens to us every now and then to give us things. He's saying, no, God is a a parent. God is is a disciplinarian. 
verse 8, Observe, therefore, all the commands I'm giving you today, so that you may have strength to go in and take over the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants, or their seed, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he's saying, you need to live by these commands, by this, this, this covenant, because it's the sole thing that will keep you in the land. Keeping the covenant is not what saved Israel. God saved Israel. Grace and their faith in his grace is what saved them. But continuing in relationship of covenant blessing absolutely is contingent on their obedience. Grace saves and leads to a life of faithfulness. If it does not lead to a life of faithfulness, it does not save. Now, whether you were saved or whether you were never really saved, let theologians debate that all they want. But the end result is the same. You do not participate in the blessings of the covenant if you do not live under the covenant. If you reject the covenant, you reject the blessings. God does not play once saved, always saved in the, in the crass sense of the term. There's very much a dynamic of obedience, ongoing obedience, and it's a requirement even for Israel to remain in the land. Otherwise, as God has said already to them multiple times, if you behave like the people of the land that I'm sending you to dispossess, to judge, if you behave like them, you'll get treated like them by me and by the land. You will get vomited out. So that's what Moses is warning against. And so he says, um, the land you're crossing over, let's see, verse, uh, yeah, verse 10. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. That's a weird phrase, irrigated by foot. You would think it would say irrigated by hand, but this is where you just need to use your visual imagination. It's hard to dig with your hands. It's easier to dig a trench with your foot. Every little kid that's ever been to the beach and they want the waves come in and they want it to make a little river that clubs up to the sandcastle and makes a moat. What do they do? They dig their heel in. Well, that's nothing new. That's how they irrigated in Egypt. Egypt didn't get a lot of rain. Egypt doesn't get a lot of rain. They depended every year on the Nile, the meltwaters from way down in South Africa, the, the annual melting of that, flooding the Nile Valley. The Nile would rise up. That would spread out, and they would dig irrigation channels to water all of their produce. And, and it was regular. It was like clockwork in Egypt. And when it didn't happen, that was a catastrophe. And so Egypt was, their, Egypt was the breadbasket of the ancient world because it was in a Nile Delta, which was irrigated by hand. And that's what the Israelites had to do, part of what their labor was. It was laboring. What, what God says is the land you're going into, this land called Canaan, is not like that. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. The land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It's the land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. Canaan is not watered by irrigation because it's rocky and it's mountainous. It's watered directly by God through the rain. Canaan gets rains in the early season and in the later season. So what we would call summer, it doesn't really rain much. And after maybe February, March, there's almost no rain. 
until the later in the season when the rains come again in the fall and then through the winter. That's how Canaan is watered. That's how its cycle goes. And what God's saying is, I'm the one who sends it. I'm the one who waters my garden. You watered the gardens of Egypt. I'm the one who directly waters this garden that my eyes are on, this land called Canaan, where you're going to take possession. So, verse 13, if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today, which are to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine, and oil. Those are the three main subsistence crops that would grow in Canaan. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle. You will eat and be satisfied. So God's basically saying, here's the thing. <clears throat> in Canaan, they were entirely dependent on rain. Entirely dependent on rain. There are no massive river valleys. I mean, there's the Jordan and others, but, but the, the soil and the rocks and the geography does not lend itself. Think of Kansas or Iowa, these sprawling fields. Okay, none of that in Canaan. If you want to think of Canaan, if you've ever driven up through like Boone or Blowing Rock or something like that, that's a lot more what it looks like in most of Israel than a, a big field. So the fields that God's talking about, I'll give you, you know, there'll be grass in your fields. The fields typically aren't even much bigger than this room. They're kind of terraced on hills. So fields, if you go to Bethlehem or if you go to these places and you're like, the shepherds were in the fields and we think of like a big field. No, it's kind of like on a mountain and there are these flat stretches and that's where you grow what you can, where you can. But God rains on it all. God waters it all. So it all grows. Here's the thing. In Canaan, the Canaanites, the ones who Israel is going into dispossessed, they believed that it was Baal that did all that. Baal was the god who sent the rains. Baal was the storm god. Baal and his consort, his, his female counterpart, who was the earth goddess, would get together sexually. That's what rain was. That was Baal impregnating the earth. That's what made the crops grow, according to the Canaanites. So God is telling his people, no, no, no. I'm the one who sends the rain, and there's no ritual about it. <clears throat> there's no incantations you have to say. What you have to do is love and serve me. Be loyal to me. I'll take care of your needs. It's, that's the covenant. That's the covenant promise of the suzerain to the vassal. So, God is promising what Baal was seen as only able to provide. There's, as Christopher Wright says, there's a lot of theology within meteorology. The weather in Canaan was a huge part of the theology of the Canaanites. And so what God was telling the Israelites to trust him to do is that be loyal to him. Do not listen to and do what the peoples in this land are doing because I alone am the one who controls the weather. I control your crops. I control your fertility. So verse 15, 16, be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. And then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain on the ground and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine on your hearts and it says minds there in NIV but it's soul. It's the word soul or life, nefesh. Um, heart and mind are the same word in Hebrew. This is a just whatever the reason the NIV went with this. But Basically, put it in your hearts, put it in your life, your soul. 
My commands, my Torah, meditate on it. This covenant, make it part of how you view the world. Let it be the lens by which you look at everything. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. In other words, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's the length of the days I want you dwelling in this land. And it'll be that way if you live as people of the covenant. And that's what all these symbols he says means. He didn't literally mean tie something around your head or tie it on your hands, although later in Jewish tradition they would do that symbolically. They would wrap leather uh, things. If you've ever seen people praying at the Wailing Wall and they have leather straps around their hands and they have the tefillin, the box on their head. Um, they have the mezuzah, which is actually a piece of Torah, or not a piece, but like a, a verse or two of Torah on the doorposts of the house. Those are literal things, but originally they are images. What God is telling Israel is not make these little things and use them as good luck charms. He's saying, put this law, this Torah, this covenant that you're entering into, everything I'm about to give you in the next 15 chapters or so, put it in every aspect of your life. Teach it to your kids. Read it. Meditate on it. Share it. Talk about it. Discuss it. Do Bible study, as we'd say. Not just your own private devotions, but actually talk about it with others. Live as people of the covenant. That's what will ensure that you remain in the land. Is it how you live? Not what you believe, but how you live it out. And so... Verse 22, if you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon. That's down in the Dead Sea area or down in the Red Sea area all the way up to Lebanon north. And from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea, so they're from the Euphrates over here all the way to the Mediterranean. No man will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as he promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land wherever you go. We'll see this in the account next book when they go to Jericho. We'll start to see this actually happening. This is what God is promising. I'm your suzerain. I'm the one who's looking after you. So if you keep your end of this deal that you've already agreed to, then I'll keep my end. I'll do the thing you can't do, which is drive out nations larger and stronger than you and provide all of your ecological needs. Those are things Israel could not do, and God's saying he'll do it. So he gives them a choice. See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse if you disobey the commandments of the Lord your God and turn away from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you to the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. So Mount Gerizim and Ebal. So Gerizim is in, I think Gerizim's in the north. Um, and No, sorry, Gerizim would be in the south. Elohim in the north. There's some scholars who've said that Gerizim was a very fertile, like it was a mountain, but it was kind of fertile and looked 
just symbolized blessing, whereas Mount Ebal was much like more barren and rocky, and so that's why it symbolized curse. Whether or not that's true, don't know. But the point is that one of these mountains, he's going to actually, this is a ceremony they're going to do. Half the people are going to stand. These are the two mountains that are kind of the gateway into the land. As they're going in, they're putting blessing curse. If you saw the Lord of the Rings movies when they're paddling down the river and there are the two giant statues that are like on either side of it, kind of like that idea. Big mountain, blessings, curses. And he's going to basically tell the people, this is a ceremony you're going to do where you're going to stand there and you're going to read. And it's basically like, here's the path you can go. Here's the warning if you go this way. And read the covenant and then all agree, we will follow the Lord. They do this covenant in Joshua 8, I think, around, uh, around chapter 8. They actually do this, this ceremony. But Moses is telling them, do that. As you know, verse 30, as you know, these mountains are across the Jordan west of the road towards the setting sun near the green trees of Moreh in the territory of those Canaanites living in the Arabah in the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to cross the Jordan and enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you've taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I am setting before you today, such as... And then that's where chapter 1 will begin, or chapter 12 will begin. Here are these laws, your decrees. So this is the preamble or, or, the, or the, the basically final, like, hey, everything I'm about to tell you, this is how you are to live. And if you don't, you cannot presume God's blessing. What you can presume is his curse. And God's blessing always is the flip side of cursing. The salvation, the deliverance of God is always seen as the flip side of the coin to his judgment on evil. Because that's what deliverance is. Victory, salvation, deliverance is always over evil, over injustice, over things that are bad. So when God comes to right the wrongs, that presupposes that there are wrongs. And if God rights the wrongs, that means that the things that are wrong are the things that get dealt with. This is always, this is something that somewhat gets lost in, in concepts of God and judgment and salvation and heaven and hell and all those things. Is that you can't have one without the other. You, you can't have the, the bliss of heaven in a fallen world without the judgment on the thing that brought about the fall anyway. And so what God's telling Israel is... When I bless you, when I bring you into this land, it is at the expense of the people who are there now. And it's because to them, I am judging them. I am driving them from the land. There is judgment on them. That is the blessing that you are inheriting. And then that warning comes along. But don't think that just because I brought you in this land, that's a blank check. That you get to live however you want, do however you want. Because God's, God's orientation towards the rebellion and evil doesn't change. He's always opposed to it. It's just how he deals with it. So, we got one question from a universalist who's going to hit me with it. How do you reconcile that with the good Christians or godly people having a lot of problems? Oh, that's, that's what the wisdom literature. Yeah, so that's what the wisdom literature is going to wrestle with. The whole, there's a whole section of the Bible. Books like Job and Ecclesiastes are going to be written to say, wait a minute, hold on, I'm living great. Why am I still experiencing this 
judgment. And it's important to realize that the promise of blessing is not an automatic promise in the fallen world. It's an eschatological promise, but it's also in this case, it's a specific promise of Israel in a very specific venue. If Israel is faithful in the land as a nation, they will experience regular rains, their crops will grow, they won't, they won't have to question how do we survive in this land. The thing is, and as we'll see, Israel never does that. Israel never keeps their end of this bargain, ever. And so all of these blessings that God is promising, as soon as they enter the land, it's like they, they never recognize it. There are hints and shades and shadows, and sometimes they get close, and then they blow it over and over and over and over and over again. And so what the prophets come along and they say is, yeah, this is inevitable because of, the, because of you, because of your sinfulness. So what God's doing through this is he's actually got something far better in mind, and there will be a time when the lion lies down with the lamb, when the child will play with the snake and will get harmed, when every man will sit under his own vine, under his own fig tree. But it's not going to happen at a national level in the ancient Near East because that ship has already sailed. You guys blew it. It's going to have something radical is going to have to happen. And then it's going to involve something that we can't even imagine that somehow this servant is going to be Israel, but he's also going to save Israel. How does that work? I don't know. And that's kind of how the Old Testament ends. Even Deuteronomy, we'll see the last chapters of Deuteronomy end that way with Moses saying, this is what you need to do, but I know you're not going to do it. So God's going to have to look beyond that to something even greater. But we'll have to get to that in a few weeks because we're out of time. You guys, it's great to be back. Have a great week. If you want some seconds, if you want some dessert, it's still here. See you next time.